0: Welcome to another episode of Out the Rabbit Hole here on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine, also on the web at KUCI.org. I'm Robert Larson. This is our July 24th, 2008 edition of the show, 5.04 on the clock. That's p.m. Pacific Standard Time here in Irvine, California. Before we get uh, started with the show today, i got a couple of quick reminders for you. The opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And if you want to give me some feedback on the show, I always appreciate that. And you can email me, rglarson at KUCI.org. You can also catch me on MySpace. That's myspace.com slash outtherabbithole. And if my voice sounds a little funny today, it's because I'm... Uh, fighting a cold, so uh, I don't know. It it sounds pretty hoarse to me, but uh, hopefully it it won't bother you. All right, uh, there's a new book called Against Happiness in Praise of Melancholy. An unexamined reaction to the title might have you thinking, hey, don't invite that author to the party. (laughs) But one of the points of the book is that Americans' unexamined obsession with superficial happiness and shunning and denial of essential melancholy leaves us only partial Humans and actually is a hindrance to states much higher than mere happiness, states such as joy, ecstasy, and transcendence. Uh, this thoughtful and provocative work actually would make me want to invite the author to one of my get togethers so we've invited him to the show today. He is Eric G. Wilson. Regular listeners will remember him from his two previous appearances to discuss his earlier wonderful books, The Strange World of David Lynch. Transcendental Irony from Eraserhead to Mulholland Drive in Secret Cinema, Gnostic Vision in Film. Eric Wilson, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks, Robert. I'm, as always, very glad to be here with you.
0: Yeah, we, we had some really uh, great discussions the last two times you were on the show. It just uh, had me thinking for weeks afterward. Me too. <laughs> well, from what you've been telling me, people, uh, some people have been reacting to this book in a defensive way, as if they are sort of offended, as if they feel threatened uh, by what you're saying. Is that is that right?
1: Well, it has been a rather controversial book. It's gotten some very positive reviews, but it has gotten some uh, savagely negative reviews, um, namely from um, many... um People's favorite NPR personality, Garrison Keillor. (laughs) When I I got that that mockingly negative view from Garrison Keillor in the New York Times Book Review, I thought, well, what's next? Oprah Winfrey's going to take me down. Uh, (laughs) But but, but indeed, I I think the book has touched a nerve in in many readers, uh, both professional reviewers and, and regular readers, because it does attack what many people see as the spirit of America, the American dream. Ever since the beginning of of America, first as a colony, then as a nation, um, there has been this assumption that this is the place where dreams can come true. This is a place where utopia might indeed be founded. And if you are going to be a good American, not only do you have a right to be happy, but you almost have a moral obligation to be happy. Uh, after all, we are a blessed nation. We are uh, the recipient of God's manifest destiny. And there's no reason not to feel perfectly comfortable with that situation i'm obviously being somewhat um... (laughs) in, in that last bit um... But yeah, it's it's um it's it's gotten it's gotten a lot of response, both positive and negative, and uh, ultimately I think that's a good thing because it has at least gotten some people talking.
0: Yeah, I agree. And and if if uh, if you're not getting some people questioning what you're saying, you're not saying anything that's uh, that, that controversial or that deep or something. You know, generally speaking. But you know, uh, yeah, well, I have to say when I first saw it, I, um, you know, happiness. Well, well, who's against that? You know, and and then. Once I started reading it and get, getting into it, and uh, understanding what you meant by well, not you know happiness per se, but this just blind uh, striving for this really sort of shallow happiness that is, makes us, you know sort of just partial humans and, and ignoring the full spectrum of, of uh, states of mind.
1: That's exactly it. Uh, I, in my book, the happiness I'm against is what I see as, as American happiness. I'm very clear about that. Part of what motiva- motivated me to write the book was my reading of a, a, a Pew Research poll taken a few years back that said 84% of Americans say they're, they're happy. Uh, and I found this shocking, given how tragic our world is. And it, it really got me thinking of the fact that, that, that Americans, on the whole, seem to strive for a rather trouble-free life. America seems to to dislike any sort of friction whatsoever, and because America has been such a prosperous nation economically, it's made it rather easy for a lot of our citizens to um, surround themselves with kind of superficial material comforts. Um, uh, That's one part of the book. The other part is, again, this kind of deep cultural investment America has in being the place where dreams come true. Uh, the, the place where one can realize a, a sort of utopia, uh, can, can, can become president of the United States if one wants to. Both of those factors, America's uh, material prosperity, America's kind of cultural uh, commitment to happiness, have, have led to what I see as, as, as a nation of, of half-people, uh, people who uh, think sadness is weird, aberrant, eccentric, a disease, um, people who want to repress sadness, ignore sadness, marginalize sadness, um, and, and to me, this leads to a rather, a rather inauthentic situation. So my book is really a call to, as you put it well, a full life, a fully lived life, which is a life that, is, that endlessly vacillates between joy and sorrow, a melancholy and affirmation. And to be authentic, it seems to me, is to be able to express the dark side as well as the light side. And, and in fact, to realize the two go together. And we're able to realize that sometimes when we're sad, um, our best self really comes forth.
0: Right, and I, I know you're um, influenced a lot by Carl Jung, and you know he talked a lot about the, the shadow, and, that, and it seems that, that Americans have this habit of uh, you know, repressing the shadow, denying that we have this dark side.
1: Well, we, we, we repress it, and then, as you all know, we project it onto our so-called enemies. <laughs> that's, that's where the shadow comes out. Um, My book was very much influenced by Jung, who at one point says that neurosis is a form of knowledge. When we do feel agitated, when we feel uneasy, uh, we shouldn't flee as quickly as we can to some sort of uh, state of of superficial pleasure. We should endure the disease. We should endure the agitation because that is our psyche sending us important information that we need to grow as a a human. I want to be clear. My, My book is not really celebrating depression at all. In fact, I make a clear distinction between depression and melancholy. Depression, as I see it, is a pretty horrific state, at least a lethargy, paralysis, apathy, very painful, and should be treated any way um, that one can treat it, including antidepressants. Melancholy, in contrast, I think is more this union sense of of the darkness. Um, When we're melancholy, we feel uneasy in relation to the status quo. We feel like what we've been taught as children, we feel like the conventions of our society aren't really giving us what we need so we question we doubt and in doing that we often pull within and in pulling within we often discover powers maybe from the unconscious powers that we weren't aware of that we wouldn't have been aware of had we merely remained tranquil and in grasping these new powers we want to act on them we want to form new habits new ways of seeing new ways of being so in this way melancholy as I define it in the book is, is a power of self-revelation and also a power of creativity. Um, and, and for those two reasons, an absolutely essential part of, of fully lived life, an essential part of, of growth in, into a deeper, richer relationship to the world.
0: Yeah, and, and I don't think you are saying by any stretch that we should seek out uh, turmoil and darkness and, and uh, all of that, but we don't, we don't have to. There's plenty of it there. We just need to not be in denial about that part of the spectrum.
1: That's exactly it. I I, I certainly would never um, say that we should cultivate sadness. It will come. As you say, it is simply a natural part of our human existence. And and to pretend that it's not is, 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 is unhealthy. In fact, there's a really interesting book that came out about a year ago, influential in my book, called The Loss of Sadness by two psychologists, Horowitz and Wakefield. And in this book, they, they they study the history of of the various um, diagnostic standards that psychiatrists have used to label de- depressive types over the years. And what these two psychologists found was that what was once simply normal sadness, natural sadness, say, natural grief, natural mourning, is now to be diagnosed as clinical depression, and therefore being medicated. And these two psychologists found this very troubling, as do I. Again. Uh, The idea being that we may be sort of numbing ourselves to uh, a a really um, vital part of our existence, a part of our existence that we might need not only to teach us not to take life for granted, often when we're sad we realize what's most valuable to us and therefore don't take life for granted, but also, and this is a point I probably should have developed more in the book, when we feel sad often our moral sensibility kicks in Um, when we suffer. We often have a sensitivity to the suffering of others as well, and therefore want to reach out um, with generosity and charity toward other people. If we're simply happy all the time, we're often um, numb to other people's suffering.
0: Right, and you cite that uh, study. Uh, was it the a Pew report uh, that said that? Uh, let me let me find this here in my notes here. That um, okay. Uh, Oh, no, it was in psychology today that happy people are more likely to be bigots than sad people.
1: I, 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 given my, my political leanings, I, I found some of the statistics to be quite interesting. Uh, Republicans are more likely to be happy than Democrats. And, yes, happy people are more likely to be bigots than people who aren't happy. Uh, those are somewhat comical statistics, but in fact they're quite serious, and um, in my book I, I make much of those, saying that, yeah, I think I think people who wake up every morning saying, look, I have a right to be happy, I'm going to do whatever it takes to be happy, can become sort of complacent, um, can become sort of insulated, um, can in fact become kind of egocentric, um, assuming the world is there for their pleasure, and... Hence, um, a lot of people who uh, spend their lives trying to be happy and only happy at the expense of sadness could become rather prejudiced quite quickly, I would think.
0: Yeah, yeah, to to kind of uh, expand on that a little, the two things we talked about, the Pew report uh, that uh, revealed uh, Republicans to be happier than Democrats, and uh, and it would seem to me that a certain lack of of deep thought, reflection, and self-examination would be required to put forth a, a candidate such as George W. Bush. So you know, if those qualities are more you know prevalent among Republicans, that would explain uh, you know the findings that that um, you know that these people are kind of resting in a sort of shallow happiness because there's no deep examination of anything going on. And I know I'm quite generalizing there.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, 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 no, I I I I get the gist of what you're saying, and in fact, my I was, my book grew out of my disgust for <laughs> the Bush regime in a lot of ways. I, I, I saw in America you know, five years ago, six years ago, uh, sort, sort of buying fully into uh, Bush's um, message that everything is all right, that what we are doing um, in Iraq, what we're doing in Afghanistan, what we're doing with home security, what we're doing with the Patriot Act, it's fine. We know, we know what's best. And many people were simply going along with that. I was shocked at how few protests there were. Um, I was shocked at how um, the government was starting to censor dissent. And it really got me thinking that it is precisely melancholy in some ways that is at the, at the leading edge of, of all powerful political rebellion. It's often um, at the leading edge of, of avant-garde art, um, the idea being that if you're melancholy, you are longing for something else you're longing for a better world. You're longing, you're yearning for a deeper life. And part of that deeper life is trying to figure out what is true. And in fact, there's um, been some interesting recent work in the field of psychology where many psychologists have found that people who tend toward melancholy can see the world more clearly uh, than people who tend toward happiness all the time. This phrase has come come to light called depressive realism, depressive realism It says exactly that, that um, people who are depressed have a reality principle that is much stronger than people who want to be happy all the time. And, and again, being being anti-Bush, I can can begin to see how a lot of the the Republicans, indeed a lot of the American citizens after 9-11, kind of duped themselves um, into thinking that what Bush was doing was right and lost the reality principle. Um, If I can just say one more thing about that point – really fascinating book came out, another fascinating book called Lincoln's Melancholy by a guy named Joshua Wolf Schenck, where he argues that what made President Lincoln such a great leader was precisely his melancholy. He was a deeply melancholy man. Um, but that gave him a kind of depressive realism, a willingness to live in doubt, a willingness not to make quick, idealistic decisions, but to kind of uh, uh, survey the facts honestly. And that made him a better leader than Jefferson Davis. Um, the president of of the of the southern states, who was rather idealistic and and rather um, a warmonger, much in the mold of our, our current president.
0: Yes, yeah, so I think uh, what you're saying is, that if you're resting in this place of melancholy, you're you're uncomfortable. So you're looking, you're constantly looking, what's going on? Why am I feeling this way? And you're trying to to come up with something that gives your Existence, uh, more of a a meaning the the pain you're feeling. Whereas if you're just resting in that shallow happiness, wh- why examine it, Anything? It's just everything's just kind of okay. Well, this is nice.
1: Precis- precisely. My my book is really a call to the contemplative life. Uh, put put very simply, I feel that America as a nation has had a h- hard time with contemplation. Um, America as a nation, and and I am generalizing. I admit. Has really been committed to um, more or less the external life, and, and we can easily see this in our history as we as we've risen to a, a nation famed for its pragmatism, um, famed for its power in war, and, and famed for its economic prosperity. I, I mean, obviously, these are these these aren't necessarily terrible things when when used wisely. But but I, but I think I think America needs more of an inward turn, and and in fact, in part of my book, I talk about American versions of of. Of Jesus, as opposed to European versions of Jesus, and it's interesting that many American versions of Jesus, growing out of um, the Protestantism, which is very much tied to the work ethic, as Max Weber showed in the early part of the 20th century, often see Jesus as almost this kind of self-help guru um, who, <laughs> who provides mantras or, or affirmations that are there to make us happy. And you see someone like Norman Vincent peel and the power of positive thinking, basically treating Jesus as a kind of uh, ancient entrepreneur. Um, Who's, who's given us wisdom that will help us make money. In contrast, many many of the European artists um, over the years, um, like St. John of the Cross and others, have seen Jesus as the man of sorrows. Someone who was very um, uncomfortable with his uh, so-called divine calling. Someone who, um, the night before his crucifixion, uh, sweat blood, he was so um, distressed. Someone who on the very cross before he died said, Father, Father, why hast thou forsaken me? So. There's, there's a sense in this European Jesus, and again, I'm, I'm admittedly generalizing that, that being crucified, torn, dismembered, sad, sorrowful, is really the beginning of, of a kind of spiritual sensibility. Now, my book's not, not about theology, um, but, but I think there is something to that, that, that part of any kind of quest, philosophical quest, religious quest, artistic quest, often, again, grows out of that place of things are not as they should be, I don't feel good about things right now. I want to search for other ways to do things.
0: Right and uh, yeah, great comments about Jesus. That yeah, we have this this notion of, of as you said a sorry. Uh, how do you describe him? A, a self help uh, guru, yeah,
1: self help guru, right? Or a, a kind of entrepreneurial uh, guide? Yeah,
0: yeah, or you know, or a Tony Robbins with long exactly. hair. You know, and, and so that, that and it sort of ignores this. This was a guy or character, mythological or not, however, you know, but if you follow the stories or at least the way they were – they used to be told in Europe uh, that darkness, you know, a lot of struggle, just struggling with that dark side, a lot of pain, and uh, this uh, – you know, we, we're we sort of like hopped up here in America on, on simplicity and easy answers and quick fixes and scapegoating and, uh, you know, get-rich-quick schemes acquiring more toys, and that's not how I think most theologians have always read Jesus.
1: Right, right. Yeah, I mean, obviously the more sophisticated theologians have, have seen Jesus as, as this rather this melancholy vi- visionary. Um, I, I, you know, you and I in some passages have talked a little bit about Gnosticism. Um, that, that's another real impetus behind this book, and I don't really mean Gnosticism in a purely theological way. I guess I mean a kind of secular Gnosticism, um, which basically looks at the world as it is, and sees it as a realm largely of, of illusion and brainwashing, um, and wants to break through those um, those grids, those matrices, to, to something beyond. And, and in fact, I've, I've actually written an essay or two on, on how many of the early Gnostic visionaries were very melancholy souls, and in fact suggested that anxiety is not something to be fled from, but anxiety is, 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 is a kind of awakening. Now, of course, this is carried over in our 20th century to a lot of existentialist philosophers, people like Heidegger and Sartre, who've said exactly that, that when we are anxious, we are, we are most human. So, so I'm, I'm really interested in what we might call the sort of psychology and the philosophy of melancholy. I, I'm not really only interested in it as, as a kind of cultural force, but, I'm, but I guess I'm also interested in it as, 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 a, as a really a, an impetus uh, to, to the contemplative life, which, which doesn't so much romanticize anxiety, but just says that when 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 we are anxious, when we are agitated, um, we are most alive, and we can think of this in, in pretty simple terms. For instance, if if I told you you only had a year to live, you'd of course feel horrible. You would feel deep sorrow, deep sadness. But suddenly the world would come to life for you. It would be vital and interested and interesting and vivid in ways that it never was before. I'm not saying that we should go around all the time thinking we're going to die in two seconds, but I do think that if we had more of a sense of our finitude, more of a sense of the tragic nature of life, the world wouldn't be dour. It would, it would be more vivid and, and um, ultimately more interesting and joyful.
0: Yeah, I think you also mentioned in your book some of the philosophers or uh, thinkers who would keep a skull on their desk to remind them that death was coming and that uh, to uh, behave accordingly.
1: Yeah, there's this old idea um, from the European Middle Ages and Renaissance. Um, the Latin phrase for it is memento mori, memory of death. And this led a lot of medieval uh, uh, nuns, uh, monks probably rather, not nuns, to, to, yeah, to have skulls on their desks or sometimes to sleep in coffins. Of course, this is rather morbid to our mind. <laughs> um, but, but I think it's, it points to a kind of deep truth that, that if we accept the fact that we are finite and, and that we are going to die and that no one can die our death for us, then we suddenly realize our possibilities, oh, I'm not going to live forever, I better look to find out who I am and and really kind of explore myself and and actualize my potentialities. Really the most sophisticated and beautiful example of this idea that doesn't sound so morbid at all is is the life and work of of the 19th century British poet John Keats, um, who at a very very young age, in his early 20s, um, knew he was going to buy, die of tuberculosis most any time. His mother had died of tuberculosis. His brother had died of tuberculosis. He started spitting up blood in his early 20s. He didn't despair over this, though. He really saw this as a sort of muse, if you will, and he started writing feverishly and wrote some of his greatest poems in the last few years of his life, one of which is his, his most powerful poem called Ode on Melancholy from 1819. And in this poem, he he says that the only way we can experience the world's beauty is through sorrow. And here's how he says this. He says, if you look at a rose, for instance, um, or a rainbow, really anything that that you find beautiful, it's beautiful in the most powerful way when we know that it's going to die. Um, A real rose is more beautiful than a porcelain rose because a real rose is tender. It's decaying. It's fragile. And it's precisely that sense that it's passing, that it's pushing toward death, that makes us say, oh, stop, wait, let me look at you. Um, And at that point we realize how beautiful the rose really is. So for Keith, there's this interesting relationship among sorrow over the death of everything, but also the exuberance that comes with experiencing the beauty of these things because they die. Um, I think that's a really wonderful moment um, in our literature. And and in fact, that that moment, I guess, more than anything, um, is, is is right at the core of my book.
0: Yeah, and I love uh, you know all all the uh, what you write about him, as well as the other people who influenced it. Uh, this book, uh, uh, William Blake, Beethoven, John Lennon. Uh, the, Bruce Springsteen people you know all over the map sort of in in the artistic world and it, so it really helped to, to bring it all home for me and the book we're talking about is against happiness in in praise of melancholy Eric G Wilson the author our guest today I'm Robert Larson this is out the rabbit hole KUCI in Irvine so Eric you know you use the expression uh, melancholy irony can you explain that to us
1: I can it's 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 really I guess the most philosophically complex idea in my, in my book, and I'm really glad you asked me about it. I think you're the first um, interview who has asked me about that, so I'm quite thrilled. I, I should have known you would ask me. That. Great thing. Um, there, there's a certain kind of irony um, that that developed um, in the late 18th century and into the early 19th century. I, I'm not going to go into a kind of scholarly disquisition, but but this kind of irony um, grew out of some of the German idealists um, and some of the British Romantic writers. And this kind of already basically says this, that the world is so uh, superabundant with energy and power and meaning, it's so complex, it's so nuanced, it's so varied, it's so heterogeneous that no one representation, no one worldview, no one statement, no one work of art can ever capture this world perfectly, can ever accurately capture how this world really is. So there's a gap always between what we say about the world and how the world really is. So, this leads to the fact that every statement properly seen is somewhat ironic. It's partially true, um, but also it's not true. So every, every, every world view, like Christianity, for instance, or Marxism, for instance, partially expresses the nature of the world, but at the same time is woefully inadequate for expressing the nature of the world. So if, if I embrace this kind of irony as a thinker, I'm very much aware of the fact that everything I say is tentative, everything I say is only um, temporary, nothing I say is absolutely true. Now, this is troubling to some people because it basically says that I can never rest in any kind of certainty. But it's very um, inspiring to other people for precisely that reason, um, that we always need to think, we always need to seek, we always need to look at the world from a different angle. And in doing this, we're kind of endlessly transcending the position that we had before. And this can lead to a kind of intellectual and artistic ecstasy in a way. Ecstasy means to move out of stillness. So, so what I mean by melancholy irony is precisely that, that it's a melancholy fact that we'll never be able to describe the world with any absolute certainty. Um, but it's precisely that melancholy fact that gives us freedom, um, that gives us room, that gives us possibility, um, that gives us space in which to think and explore and create new things. Um, this idea really is connected to a book by a philosopher named Richard Rorty called Philosophy in the Mirror of Nature where he says that the true job of philosophy is not to explain everything. If we could do that, the world would freeze over and die. The true <laughs> job of philosophy is to keep a conversation going. And mm-hmm. you, can, you can think of a really good conversation you've had with somebody. You don't know what he or she's going to say next, right? It's almost like jazz, right? It's improvisational. You zig, you zag, you explore that, you explore this and even though you don't reach a final conclusion it's totally exhilarating and it's a very rich act of thinking and it's a very rich act of living and again it's somewhat ironic because any position you might take is only true in a small way but also it's totally untrue and that gets at the really core of irony an ironic statement um, says one thing grammatically and means the exact opposite rhetorically. So any ironic statement is almost like a, a self-erasing sentence, <laughs> like like one of those <laughs> mission impossible missions, right? This this will self-destruct in five seconds. Well, that's really how our philosophies work in, in, in this context I'm talking about.
0: Yeah, so we can never have ultimate answers. And I know for me personally, and I'm sure for many others, that is simultaneously – Troubling and inspiring.
1: that's exactly it. That's exactly it. It's troubling and inspiring at the same time. Um, and to have it any other way to me is kind of copping out. Um well, no, no, I don't want to go into that troubling stuff. I don't want to feel doubt. I don't want to be in some kind of uh limbo. I wanna figure out what's what. I wanna know what is, so I will be this and this will be true. And that may be satisfying. But it divorces us from the true nature of the world as I see it, and the world is, is endlessly polarized, it's endlessly duplicitous. Um, it's, it's life, it's death, it's dark, it's light, it's joy, it's sorrow. Um, and, and to try to kind of reduce the world to some kind of monovision um, to me is, is not only possibly alienating, but it also can be very destructive, <laughs> as we know from uh, many of our totalitarian regimes have grown out of precisely that kind of reductive thinking.
0: Right. So it's like if you want the solid, uh, undeniable answer, well, then the question, if you have that kind of an answer, we, it's either it's wrong or you're asking the wrong kind of question, a question that gets at nothing. And, and uh, you know, those questions that cannot be answered in that way, which really is mostly everything, you know, are are the important questions.
1: Yeah, I mean, you're exactly right. What is truth? What is beauty? What is goodness? These are the only questions worth asking, but they're also eminently unanswerable. Does that mean that we're nihilist? Does that mean that there's no value in the world? No, absolutely not. Um, It it means that the world is so full of vigor and energy, and it's such a plenitude um, that we simply can't fit it into our rather – uh, narrow philosophical linguistic categories. So, so I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that the world has no value. Um, I'm suggesting in many ways that it's too valuable. Um, <laughs> with, with, with its kind of superabundance of significance, it's too valuable for our rather small-minded um, worldviews. Um, so I, in, in my book, I really kind of build up to that, and that's, I think that comes in near the end of the book, this, this kind of the, the final crescendo of the book this idea that um, there are basically two kinds of irony. There's what I call instrumental irony, which is the kind of glib irony of Generation X, <laughs> kind of glib irony that, that many of us practice today, the kind of Seinfeld irony, the kind of, uh, kind of been-there-done-that irony, the jaded irony, the, the slacker irony, um, which basically is just saying no to everything. <laughs> I mean, that kind of irony is kind of valueless. That um, kind of irony doesn't really take anything very seriously at all. And kind of mocks everything. Um, The kind of irony I'm talking about is much different. This romantic irony, this melancholy irony, is in fact a way of embracing the world fully um, in all of its mysteries.
0: Yes, again, we're talking to Eric G. Wilson, and we're discussing his book, Against Happiness in Praise of Melancholy. And uh, Eric, uh, do you want to give out any contact information, website, MySpace, email, or anything?
1: Uh, well, I, I, I think the best thing to tell uh, your listeners is, is, you know, the book can be purchased on Amazon.com. It can be purchased BarnesandNoble.com, and it's it's available at most all, um, you know, bookstores, major bookstore chains around around the country. But um, I, I do have a website. Um, the address is, is is rather lengthy. I could just say, I have a Wake Forest University website. People can go to www.wfu.edu. And then there's a the little wiggly line. Don't know what you call it. <laughs> there's the slides and the wiggly line. that Wilson, eg, <laughs> and they can find out more about my book. They can check out some reviews and some blurbs and whatnot. Um, but I will say, on my um, my Amazon.com um, page, I, I do have a blog um, where I, I do address some of the issues in the book. I, I address some of the negative reviewers and, 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 and such as that. So the, so readers can get a lot of. Listeners can get a lot of information from that Amazon.com page um, for Against Happiness.
0: Okay, and I'm sure they can just Google you as well, and you'll oh, come yeah. up on all these things, Eric G. Wilson. Again, the book is against happiness in praise of melancholy, and you know we were talking about this uh, this shallow happiness that that many of us as Americans get caught up in, and um, but actually, it's sometimes it's really it's a fake or just a stated happiness. People are are saying they're happy because it's you know, under, as their understanding of, of our culture, it's too embarrassing to admit that you're not happy, and they're really trying to hide this uh, quiet desperation, right?
1: This book grew out of a lot of my own experience. I, I've, I've been of a rather melancholy turn my whole life. In fact, quite frankly, I've, I've had some pretty mighty struggles with depression. Um, and and I've, I've struggled with that, not only personally, but also culturally I, I've on many occasions had people tell me when I was a little sad of a given day, um, you, need, you, need, you need to go to a doctor, you need to get with the program, you need to smile more, you need to pick up a new hobby. Um, I felt constant pressure from those around me um, to be happy. Uh, uh, and, 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 again, I, I, just, I just feel like a lot of people in America feel this pressure to be happy. I'm not saying that the people who participated in the um, Pew Research um, survey were liars, but (laughs) I think some of those uh, people who who, um, computed into the 85% probably thought, well, um, I should be happy. I'm an American. And, And perhaps they just put down that they were happy because they felt that they should. So I do believe that a lot of people are living, as Thoreau suggests, a life of quiet desperation because it's frustrating to try to be happy all the time, to put that fake smile on all the time, to say life is great all the time when, you, when you're really hurting on the inside. I've been very gratified. Many people have emailed me and have said that my book has really made them feel comfortable for the first time with expressing their sadness to their friends, their spouses. So I, I really hope that my book does send that message, a message of hope, that if you are sad some of the time or most of the time, not only is it okay, in fact it may be the most essential part of yourself try, try, trying to come through um so so i th- I think that's very important. This book is not a kind of downer book um it is an anti self help self help book <laughs> finally <laughs> in a lot of ways
0: yeah and and you do kind of talk about uh, uh sort of like goth kids and i'll I'll actually put like emo kids in that category as well who who create this sort of like fake uh, uh melancholy or depression and that that's not really what you're talking about either.
1: No, I mean, to me, people who wake up every morning and try to cultivate melancholy to to strike a kind of cultural pose are just as as troubled and indeed shallow as the people who wake up every morning trying to be happy all the time. My book's about the golden mean, I guess you could say. It's about trying to find that that rich synthesis between these two sides of life, darkness and light, joy and sorrow. But to go to one side or the other with with too much um, commitment, leads to that, that half-life. So it's really a call to the full life. Um, I can think of a nice moment that gets at your, your, your question um, about people being frustrated trying to be happy all the time. Um, there's a nice moment in Ralph Waldo Emerson's 1844 essay called Experience where he says I, I have a friend who wakes up every morning expecting the world to conform perfectly to his desires. <laughs> um, for that reason, he's either frustrated or he ignores whatever does not fit his desires. <laughs> so you put yourself in a kind of double bind there. Um, yeah. Emerson says, I, on the other hand, kind of aggrandizing himself a little bit, says, I wake in the morning not expecting too much of the world, therefore I accept, and I'm quoting now, the potluck of the day. I embrace the clinger and the jangle of contrary tendencies. Oh, I love that sentence that just just kind of open to, to whatever happens, open to whatever comes your way. And, and that's not very secure. Um, that's not very comfortable. But, again, it leads to a kind of exciting, um, rich, and sometimes exuberant life.
0: Yeah, that was a great uh, – could, could you say that again, that quote?
1: Sure, sure. Um, he says, he says I, um, I wake every morning um, not expecting much out of the world. Um, and this is, this is the quote, I accept the potluck of the day. I embrace the clangor and the jangle of contrary tendencies.
0: <laughs> you have a lot of those in the book it, and a lot of those which are your own words and I I want to say that now that you're a great writer, you great use of words and I sort of like pick out little phrases here and there and like wow, that that's very cool. I, I will uh put they need to be in pull uh, quotes somewhere or something, you know, just really I uh, appreciate that.
1: Well, thank you, Robert. That means a lot. Um not only because I really admire your opinion, but also uh some reviewers have actually had trouble with the style. Um, they, they feel that it's too, um, well, it tends to be too literary or it's too dense or it's too, to tries to be too lyrical. In fact, some reviewers have actually <laughs> mocked the style from time to time. And I I can see that to some extent. I You, you can really see my true masters come out in, in the style of the book. I mean, I, I've been steeped in 19th century literature for so long with people like Melville, people like Emerson, people like Thoreau that in some ways, the, the style is a little, a little 19th century in feel, um, but to me that adds a kind of power to it. I, I hope it adds a kind of lyrical power to it that will speak to people, um, and, and it has indeed spoken to many people. But some people, I, I just think, haven't quite understood what I'm going for.
0: Well, it makes you remember it. I mean, you could write in a very bland style that everybody else <laughs> is using, and okay, well, you know, we've seen that before. So, um, while I was reading the book, I, it made me think of an experience I had. Uh, while I was working at a college, there was a young female student who confided to me that she spent thousands of dollars a month, er, every month, on clothes. And she wasn't an heiress or anything, just kind of middle class, and spending thousands of dollars a month on clothes. And, and it was striking to me how aware she was of, of what she was doing, but couldn't stop. She would tell me that uh, you know, that each time she'd buy a new item, she'd, she'd feel happy for a few hours. And then it would wear off. And she said something to the effect of, "The hole I'm trying to fill up never gets full." Do you run across, you know, situations like that where?
1: I I I, I do, and in fact, I I must have probably been guilty of that times <laughs> myself. I think, I think many of us feel a, a deep spiritual emptiness, a deep metaphysical emptiness, just a, a deep emptiness in life. We feel like life is not pleasant, we feel like life is troubling, confusing, and sometimes doesn't have much meaning, but I think we try to feed that emptiness with the wrong stuff. Um, like um, we've been so um, inculcated with the idea that materialism will give us what we need, that that we try to feel spiritual needs with material objects. Uh, and to me that's like trying to nourish yourself on ca- cotton candy. <laughs> you can eat it all day and it tastes good, but you never get full. Uh, so, so. Um, I, I, in my book and in my own life, am trying really hard now not to buy into that that American addiction for things and and simply try to, how shall I put this, sort of of sit with the emptiness, not try to fill it up so quickly. Just sit with the emptiness, and, and as Jung says, if you sit with the emptiness long enough, it can become fullness in some cases.
0: Yeah. 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 I love the way you talk about in the book of uh, going for walks on dreary days and just being with your thoughts and looking at old things and uh, appreciating uh, older buildings and their sort of state of half decay and that there seems to be a uh, among among many modern Americans just not too much appreciation for that kind of thing.
1: Well, we can see this with uh, not only the suburbanization of our landscapes, but indeed with the suburbanization of our cities. It's like the suburbs went out from the cities, um, and suburbs, of course, to me, are are a terrible blight uh, because they basically reduce difference to the same. Almost every suburb looks the same as every other suburb, and you get these kind of prefabricated houses. You get these utterly predictable sort of gated communities, and the, gated, the suburb in this way is just a way to kind of escape the turmoil of the city. But the terrible thing is that now um, suburbia is coming back to the cities to take them over uh, like a virus. You can think of Times Square. I don't know if you've been there recently, but no. you know, I lived in New York back in the 80s and 90s, and Times Square, admittedly, was a pretty gritty place. Um, it was <laughs> somewhat dangerous, of course, but yeah, it was exciting. But now there's, you know, basically it's become Disneyland. Um, all, all, these, uh, all these chain stores have come into Times Square, um, Disney stores have come into Times Square, chain restaurants have come into Times Square. So we're basically, you could go to any strip mall in um, middle America and see the same kind of stuff you'll see in New York City's Times Square. So to me that's a great loss, because it's a loss of what I call particularity. And that's another point of my book, that if we go through life wanting only happiness, we live a rather abstract life. Um, what, when we look at the world, all we really see are the things that we want to see. <clears throat> all we really see are reflections of our own notion of what will make us happy. And if we kind of implement those ideas, we do things like build suburbs, and, and we build Walmarts, and we um, ignore uh, old downtown areas. Uh, we, we ignore historical districts. We ignore ecosystems. We lose particularity. We lose, we lose, we, as Walker Percy says, we lose creatures. So, so melancholy also I think connects us to particularity when when we do feel <clears throat> sad we're often very aware of our environment we're very attuned to our environment um, and and for that reason we often find value in parts of the world that, that the, the big kind of industrial military complex of America would would, would um, ignore at best and kind of um, bulldoze over at worst
0: yeah you know it's it's interesting I, I was born in the suburbs and lived uh, most of my life in the suburbs. And it's uh, for some reason, I don't feel that I'm a typical person (laughs) that has that background and uh, somehow was able to sort of see beyond some of that what you're talking about, that blandness. And an interesting thing I've always found about that is when you do connect with people in the suburbs who are living there for whatever reason, usually, I mean, the ones obviously who are not necessarily there by choice, it's kind of uh, some sort of uh, situation that we're forced into, that those kind of people have a really interesting view of it all because they've been in it, but they see what the drawbacks of it are. You know what I'm talking about?
1: I, I can totally see that, right? So so you're actually kind of inhabiting what what, what might be you know, one of the most troubling parts of America, and you're not happy to be there, <laughs> um, but you are there, and that can probably um, be the consciousness-raising, I, I would imagine. Um, I've spent some time in, in the suburbs myself. and <laughs> I, I know what you're talking about. I mean, and I don't want to suggest that people who live in suburbs are shallow. No, I, I just want to say that um, I, I think that's become kind of a master, um, a master metaphor in a way or a master idea for thinking about how we should live life in America. There's kind of an overemphasis on suburban life. But certainly, um, yeah, there, there are a lot of people out there like yourself who are deeply thinking people who can look at suburban life and think, well, this... This isn't quite what I want. I I want. I want something different. I want something else. Um, And in in fact, I I would say that it it is precisely, you know, living in America for me um, that has probably made me much more aware of of the the problems with America. So it's almost like you you you, when you're when you're in the camp of the enemy, you can you can know your enemy better. I guess is one way to look at it. Well, I
0: I just remember back in you know the late 70s, early 80s, and. I was into the uh, punk rock movement, which was a new thing then, you know, late 70s, and the, you know, in L.A. it was happening, but, you know, I was living in Fullerton, the suburb of Fullerton, Mm -hmm. you know, about 30 miles from L.A., and when you could find other kids that had somehow broken through the mold of what suburbia was trying to put on them and and found this... And people that were also into kind of like weird writers and that, you know, Philip K. Dick lived (laughs) in our town there in Fullerton and we found out about him is like there was something kind of magical about that. And it was just like, oh, you can you can find this stuff out here. You can find other people. And it's like they it took something more to, to break out of that there
1: that's amazing yeah as you were talking I immediately thought yeah Robert lived near Philip K dick <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you kind of I mean, how, how and if, and in fact I guess if there weren't suburbs maybe Philip K dick wouldn't have written as beautifully as he did about the problems with America um, that's that's really a great point that you made obviously Philip K dick is a huge influence on this book as well I feel like I'm kind of listing all my influences but um, his fiction and uh, his vision of what what can happen to America of a kind of overly blissed-out population um... and the problems with that it was really deep in my mind when I wrote the book, as was Aldous Huxley's Brave New World and films like The Stepford wise films like The Matrix.
0: Yeah, I mean, all of those influences are are uh, going to make for a great uh, read. Uh, and so, uh, yeah, I'm glad those were all part of what you did there. And. Uh, Against Happiness in Praise of Melancholy, Eric G. Wilson. And uh, let's see, I wanted to touch on a couple of other things here. Well, yeah, I mean, we talked here on the show about your book, uh, uh, Secret Cinema, Gnostic Vision in Film, and The Strange World of David Lynch, Transcendental Irony from Eraserhead to Mulholland Drive. Now, I would take those two books and this one, Against Happiness, and say there is a unifying theme and it seems that irony would be it right
1: i think that's a great point yeah I, I hadn't really put that together for myself but that's exactly it irony in the way we were discussing it earlier um that's kind of a, a a master term i guess that brings together all these ideas um and of course as as we discussed in relation to my book on david lynch um that that kind of irony is, is ultimately uh a, a mode of transcendence um it, it's a way of um always looking beyond your, your current position to something else. Of course, that leads to a life of insecurity, um, but it is precisely that insecurity, I would say, that it gives us a sense of, of the infinite, um, if, I, if I can put it that way, because think of it, if, if there's no one position that explains the world fully, if there's no one kind of finite position you can rest in. Then there may well be a kind of infinite number of perspectives from which you can view the world. Again, that's horrifying on one level, <laughs> but on another level, it's wonderful um, to suggest this kind of plurality um, of, of vision. So um, I, I, I do I do believe that that um, my, my meditation on David Lynch, my, my, my study of Gnosticism, really pre- prepared me to write this book. Um, and, I, and I guess I guess it's ultimately about the fact that life is a, is, is a pilgrimage, and it's a pilgrimage that never really ends, um, and that's a good thing.
0: <laughs> right, and and you, we touched on this a little bit earlier today, but and we we touched on it uh, in in the previous interviews. Uh, but it bears repeating: is that it's the, it, it's in that gap of uncertainty is where all this magic can happen.
1: That's that's exactly right, and and I and I, and I think of. Um, a really a great moment in, in the work of William James, um, the late 19th, early 20th century American psychologist who wrote famously Variety's Religious Experience. There's some there's some place, I don't know exactly where it is, where he says that, that genius is not the ability to hold in the mind many thoughts at one time. Genius is the ability to look at one thing from an infinite number of angles. I just love that. I mean, the idea that um, we just to, to be able to... to, to, to to explore a problem from from such a, a, a variety of positions. Um, it takes a lot of imagination to do that, I think. It takes the ability endlessly to imagine a new position, a new, a new perspective. So there is a kind of creativity to that. And Emily Dickinson said, my business is circumference, and I think that's exactly what she was getting at, always, always, always to be um, open to the new, the fresh, the unexpected. Um, so I guess in some ways my book is romantic. I mean that's a very romantic worldview, right? It's not. It's not necessarily that practical. Um, it, it is. A, it is a call to the life of, the mind, the life of what used to be called the soul. Um, but but I I, I I hope that the book, even if it is a bit excessive from time to time in its romanticism, is is a is a good corrective, um, to to some of the uh, other extremes that are going on in our country right now.
0: Well, I think the book is practical for you. <laughs> you know, definitely. I'm serious that that you this. It, this was something you needed to do, and it's also going to be practical for certain people that are of a similar uh, disposition, and uh, I really think that, and I and I agree that it's something needed at this time, and that we need to examine our obsession, you know, with creature comforts, nothing wrong with those things per se, but when that's all there is, and we're not looking deeper into things, and we're denying our shadow, and, and I, you know, something you touched on, I think, in the book, and, um, we, we kind of got into this a little bit earlier, and it, it's you know we talk about a lot of sort of political things on this show. But I, I just wanted to kind of get your take on this. It seems to me that on 9-11, Americans were forced to have to deal with mortality and their false sense of security. And because we want to remain in denial and not embrace our shadow, we projected it outward, and it manifested in toxicities such as... Guantanamo and Abu Ghraib—is that how you would see it as well?
1: Absolutely, I, 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 could, I could not have come up with a more astute and accurate analysis. Uh, I think that's exactly what's going on, and it and it and it comes it comes with um, that that dynamic of repression, projection that Jung was so um, um, brilliant and in, in, in revealing that we we can't look to our own mortality, we can't look to our own dark side, we can't look to our own um, uncertainties, agitations, our own violence indeed. We, we can't accept that. We can't accept that reality. So yeah, what do we do? We, we project that onto an other, and we demonize that other, and that allows us to justify um, rather horrendous acts of violence of our own. Uh, so so my book was is very much a call to the examined life, and the examined life does force one to look within and find the shadow, um, acknowledge the shadow embrace the shadow and only then can the shadow be incorporated in a, in a healthy fashion as long as the shadow is denied ignored repressed it's always going to come out in neurotic or um, perhaps even psychotic ways um, you know freud freud was right when he said all of society is neurotic um, but that doesn't mean all society has to be psychotic and i think there has been some psychosis in the american um, culture um... in that kind of a virulent hatred that that is, that has emerged over, over the past several years. I, I'm happy to say I think things are taking a turn for the better now. though. I, I really feel quite, um, quite hopeful um, about the direction of American politics uh, um, with Barack Obama. So ho- hopefully we're, we're we're in for better days.
0: Yeah. Well, I, I the one thing I'll say about Obama is that he's. Getting all this money from individuals, uh, not that he's not getting any corporate money, but you have to answer to the people who gave you the money. <laughs> and so I think there's some hope in that notion and that, that, you know, he's record amounts, small amounts of money from individuals. Okay, so you, those people brought you to the dance. you got to dance with them. You know, I'm hoping that will uh, be a, a situation that manifests. And well, me,
1: me too. I mean, obviously now that he's gotten the nomination, there's the danger that he'll start trying to – kowtow to the lobbyist and and perhaps lose some of that that um, that beautiful vision he had early in the campaign we'll, we'll just have to see yeah,
0: yeah. so uh, anything else you want to say uh, Eric before we wrap up here
1: well I, I guess I would just like to emphasize again that, that, I, that I I could have easily entitled my book against happiness in praise of joy um, it ends up being against happiness in praise of melancholy because the book ultimately is about how to live a rich full life and, and I think the moment that best describes, um, <clears throat> why my book came to be it was 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 a moment when um, I, I suddenly, about a, uh, two years ago, felt this very deep sadness come over me. Um, I, I felt like I didn't want to get out of bed. I, I felt really horrible. But then suddenly I realized I wanted to be with my daughter. I wanted to go get her out of preschool and be with her. And at that point, I realized that sadness can sometimes call us out into the world. It can, it can call us out. Um, to embrace the people around us and, and see them as, as as precious as they really are, and therefore kind of encourage us to connect to the world. That's the ultimate message I would want people to get from my book, that, that sadness can, is what makes us human and what connects us with other humans.
0: Thanks uh, so much for being with us today, Eric. And again, uh, they can find the book Against Happiness in Praise of Melancholy on uh, Amazon and the, all the usual places, right?
1: Yes, that's correct.
0: Okay, and uh, yeah, Eric G. Wilson, Against Happiness and Praise of Melancholy. And I'm going to close out the show today with a song called My uh, Blakeian Year. Are you familiar with that one, Eric?
1: I'm not. I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing
0: it. Yeah, okay. Uh, yeah, it's uh, Patty Smith. So uh, we'll close uh, out the show with that. I'll first remind you all that the opinions expressed on this program are not necessarily those of the KUCI staff or management or the UC Board of Regents. And, uh, yes, you can email me at rglarson at org. Next week we're going to have uh, Lawrence Velvel. He is the uh, dean of uh, the Massachusetts School of Law, and we're going to be talking about... Uh, the uh, conference, in c- he, the conference he's putting together to uh, see about uh, prosecuting certain people uh, within the Bush administration for war crimes. So that'll be a really interesting show. And uh, so, yes, uh, KUCI eighty-eight point nine FM in Irvine, also on the web at kuci.org. My Blake and years coming right up. Robert Larson saying, "I'll be talking to you next week."